When I'm working with hormones, I like to look at all of them because I could be totally convinced somebody has a low thyroid, but it turns out to be something totally different. We have one building block for our hormones. If you're under chronic stress, the body will choose to make cortisol. Toxins try to cross through our skin. They try to cross through our gut. It's not just like one. It's the combination of all this stuff. Really the only thing that matters in detox is to stop exposure. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, it is such an honor to be back here today with Doc Cause. You guys absolutely loved the first episode that we did with him. So many people reached out to me telling me that they got his book and even started working with him. So when he came out with his second book, I just knew instantly that I had to have him on the show. We dive so deep into so many things hormones, adrenals, testosterone and fertility, thyroid issues, detoxing, truly taking agency in your own health. I think this episode is so valuable and I can't wait to hear what you guys think. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash doccause. That's D-O-C-K-O-Z. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. All right. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, 
skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. Without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Doc Cause. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is with a repeat guest, and as you guys know, only the best of the best are repeat guests, so I am so looking forward to this. I am back today with Doc Cause, Dr. Peter Kozowski. He originally wrote a book called Unfunk Your Gut, A Functional Medicine Guide boost your immune system, heal your gut, and unlock your mental, emotional, and spiritual health. So we aired that episode, I'm not sure when, it was quite a few months ago. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And it was so incredible. I got so much amazing feedback about it. It was a really comprehensive look at obviously gut health and gut issues, which is something that so many people struggle with. And it's a really valuable source just in how comprehensive it is, how much information it provides, and also just how motivating and encouraging it is. I really, really love that book. Love that conversation. We are back today for Doc Cause's new book that I am equally excited about. It is called Get the Funk Out, A Functional Medicine Guide to Balance Your Hormones and Detox. And oh my goodness, friends, if you at all struggle with health issues, I mean, honestly, of any sort, this is one of the most comprehensive books I have read on the topic of just getting to the bottom of why you're not feeling well and just providing agency of just how to deal with it. There's, <laughs> I'm like a little bit overwhelmed because there's like so many things to talk about. And I'm just going to have to say right up front, just get the book because there's no way we can even remotely do it justice. So just get it now. It will be a really, really valuable resource in your life. But we will get to what we can get to in today's conversation. So Doc Cause, thank you so much for coming back and being here. Oh, it's such an honor. Thank you for such an awesome intro. I'm so glad that people liked our first talk. And 
I'm even more excited about this book than the first one. I feel like having some experience as an author and just being a little more confident in my writing, I'm really excited to get this book on hormones and toxins out there. I am equally excited as well, and I loved reading it. And so I will put a link, like I said, in the show notes to the first episode so people can definitely check that out. And you talked about your personal story in the beginning of that episode, but in today's episode, you talk about something specific in your personal story. I was wondering if you wanted to talk about it a little bit. You talk about a really interesting experience you had with your own fertility issues and hormonal issues surrounding that. Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Not something I think I'd ever thought I'd openly talk about, but that's life. So my own hormonal, and so this book is is on hormones and toxins, and I go over the thyroid and the adrenal glands and the pancreas, and then reproductive hormones. And when it comes to reproductive hormones, I kind of divide them up between male hormones and female hormones, and some overlap, but for me, my story was about testosterone. And so at the age of 32, I was diagnosed with low testosterone. And it kind of started, I it was in a abusive relationship in the past and was just coming out of that. And I was working with a doctor named Lisa Naj, and she's an environmental medicine doctor. And I was kind of telling her about my life. And she like, said like, hey, I think you have low testosterone. And I was like, what? It was offensive, honestly. It was like, I was pretty offended by it. But I humored her and I was like, fine, I'll do your test. And she started with urine testing, which I've now learned. I don't think that that's a very good test, but the urine test said that I had low T. So I followed up with a blood test and typically like testosterone ranges for men between 200 and 1100 which is one of the things I really get into in the book is the psychotic ranges that we have. Like how could one guy be normal at 200 and another one at 1100? That, that's such a discrepancy. There's so much difference there. So in general, like the lab won't report your low testosterone below, like let's say 200. Depends on the lab, but that's a rough value. So I came in below that. It was one of the biggest shocks of my life. I mean, like I said, it, I just... I'm very competitive. I, I take things personally. So for me, it was like a, a slap in the face that I had low testosterone. You know, I, I processed it and I was like, you know what? It's better to know. And that's an attitude I've kind of taken with my patients is like, you know, sometimes the, the news we get sucks, but it's better to know and then be able to do something about it. So I was advised by this doc to go on testosterone replacement which I get into quite a bit in the book about what are the different options for testosterone replacement. My knowledge was that the best option was cream. And so I was prescribed a testosterone cream that I applied twice a day. And I would say it took, you know, and I'd say the, the biggest symptom that I had my whole life that I think I had low T, I don't, I don't even know, like maybe when I was 16, 17, I'm not really sure how, how late, how long it went back. But for me, I've just always been really into sports. Like I, I love watching sports, but I love playing sports. I like working out. I grew up in the nineties in Chicago. So I thought I was going to be Michael Jordan, love to play basketball, but I always felt like I carried a little extra weight. Like I, I was never like 
obese or overweight, but I just carried more weight than I thought I should for considering like how much I exercised. And within probably like four weeks of being on testosterone, my body started to get cut up. And when I do testosterone replacement, when I did it for myself, when I do it for my patients, it's not like I, I make the joke, it's not to be like Barry Bonds. It's not to be like this massive body builder type of physique, but just to get to what an optimal level is. And in my opinion, when working with people with my own experience, an optimal number is around 800. Baseball players that are doing it to get huge contracts and all the home runs, they're probably a few thousand their level. But for just replacement to get to where you should be is around 800. So I was applying a cream and getting my levels to stay at 800. And like I said, my body started to change and just when your body changes, you just feel better about everything. And so my energy was better. My strength was better. Sex drive was better. Mood was better. I loved it. I was, was best years of my life was on testosterone replacement. And then I met my wife and we were talking about having a family and in the back of my mind, I had a bad feeling about the testosterone I was on. But that's where it gets confusing because you would think the higher your testosterone, the better, the more fertile you are. And that is the case when you're raising testosterone naturally. When you're taking some testosterone, it does the opposite. And so when I did a sperm analysis, I had no sperm just zero. And one of the worst days of my life, without a doubt, like I was like, I can't believe what I did to myself. Like I was in a very, very, very dark place. I, I was embarrassed as a physician. I was embarrassed that just as a person I, that I didn't know that, that I wasn't told and that I didn't look into it myself. And so the reason it happens is because whether we're talking about the thyroid, the adrenal glands, testosterone for men, estrogen and progesterone for women, our brain is the thermostat that sets our hormone levels. And the brain sends signals to the different organs to make more hormones. So when it comes to making testosterone, the signals that are made are called FSH and LH. And so you need these signals to be elevated. One tells you to make testosterone. The other one tells you to make sperm. When you're applying testosterone or injecting it or using pellets or whatever, those signals from the brain are shut down. So you don't make any FSH or LH because the brain is detecting that there's plenty of testosterone, so there's no need to turn on production. Well, the problem with that is that you need FSH to make sperm. That's your sperm signal. So for three years, I had basically turned off my sperm signal. And in my first book, and probably my biggest piece of advice for patients that I work with is to stay off the internet because, you know, there's, there's just an overwhelming amount of information. And sometimes you can go down some stuff that may not apply to you. Well, when I started researching on the internet about my testosterone replacement and my loss of sperm production, there's a number of things out there that say, you know, many men may never make sperm again. 
so naturally I thought that would be me, of course, and convinced myself of that, of from reading the internet. And this is even after I wrote my first book saying, stay off the internet. So I, I very much understand that that's the first place we go when we want answers. So that was not the case for me. I became, I'd say, a mini expert or an expert in natural ways to boost sperm production, boost testosterone. Also, I used a medication called clomiphene, which women may be familiar with if they've been through infertility themselves. Clomiphene, some men use to make testosterone. For me, I used it to make FSH and LH. And I did a repeat test after six months of stopping my testosterone and I was still at zero. So the panic got even worse. I was like, wow, like this is really, I just messed up my body for life. And then I did another test staying on kind of the same routine of using clomiphene and supplements. And after 12 months, everything was back to normal. So I've been off of testosterone for a few years now. Once we're done having kids, I will definitely go back on it because I've never felt as good. But I am frequently over the years counseling men who come in and, and, you know, I'm diagnosing men with low testosterone, even younger than I was, which was 32. I'm seeing it in men in their mid to late twenties. But the first thing that I always do is counsel them about family planning and is, is family planning something you want to do? If it is, then I highly recommend don't do testosterone replacement, even though I was lucky that I was able to reverse what I did. I would rather not take that risk with patients or at least let people know what the risk is. And if they want to take it, then it's up to them. But I think that's the gist of my major hormone story is, is my low testosterone leading to infertility, leading to a lot of mental, emotional, spiritual pain, but like most things in my life, kind of falling down and figuring it out and getting back up. I have so many follow-up questions about this. And I can only imagine that experience, especially that experience when you found out about it and feeling responsible, like you did it to yourself because you had chosen to go on the, the supplementation. Is this like a known thing? It should be. I mean, that, that's why I want to get my story out there. I don't think it is. I, I think there, most men that come to me for testosterone replacement, when I tell them that they, they don't really know it. And it, it makes sense because in normal, like if your body is working normally, usually more testosterone means you're more fertile. So it's just, I don't know, to me, it was common thinking like, well, if I'm low testosterone, then I must might be more infertile. So if I go on it, it should get better. I don't know the answer, honestly. Like I obviously, you know, went through medical school, residency, functional medicine training, and I didn't think about it. Or I I don't part of me also though, I feel like I chose not to think about it just because I was so happy with the results. And that's like most of us, we don't really deal with an issue until we kind of have to. So I think I partially chose to just not look into it, but it very, very, very much should be the first thing that any physician that's prescribing testosterone should talk about with their patient. Do all men react this way or do some still produce sperm? No, not unless you take another medication. So for example, what I've done with some men is 
that have very low testosterone that want to go on a replacement, I will put them on testosterone to get their levels up, but I will also put them on clomiphene, which is that medication that causes you to make more FSH and LH. So if you're on both, you can have high testosterone and you can also not lose your sperm production. But for those men like that are being cautious, like I would do a sperm analysis every few months and I would I would be checking in on their FSH and LH levels every few months to make sure that things are going as planned. I think that kind of gets into probably more than I like to of messing with our biochemistry or biohacking as you would call it. I, you know, we're, I think we're playing with fire a little bit there, you know, doing two things at once, giving one and then giving, it's kind of gets into like a traditional medicine thing. Like here, take this to feel better and then take this for the side effects that that's causing. All right. So that's something I try to avoid, but I've had a, a, a few men I've worked with choose to do that. And how often do women go on testosterone and does it affect their fertility at all? That's a good question. I really, I don't think I've put any premenopausal woman on testosterone replacement. So when I do testosterone replacement in women, it's usually post-menopause. But in theory, it should do the same thing. So in a woman, you need FSH and LH, those same signals from the brain to make eggs and then for the eggs to be released, et cetera. And testosterone should turn off those signals. So I would never want a woman of reproductive age, unless she knows she's not having kids or doesn't want to have kids, to go on testosterone replacement. Usually on like a lab test, a woman's testosterone level is like 10 to 40, roughly, let's say. So much lower than the like 200 to 1100 that a man should be at. I don't know that I've ever seen a low testosterone in a premenopausal woman. You talk about in the book how it can actually become other things like DHT or even estrogen. How common is that? And do you see that in a lot of your patients? Yes. So it, that kind of depends on factors like how healthy is your body, right? What's your diet like? Is your body really inflamed? Are you eating kind of like the standard American diet? Is your body full of like mold or heavy metals or do you have dysbiosis? Those are things that would cause testosterone to get converted into pathways that you don't necessarily want. I have a number of men that are taking basically like some supplements that stop the conversion. Usually the main one that men worry about is too, if you have too much testosterone, it's more likely that some of it's going to be converted to estrogen. And as a man, you don't really want too much estrogen. One of the side effects of testosterone replacement, and I saw it once in one of my patients, is breast growth. And so I had a man that, that had some breast growth, and I think that was from the testosterone being converted to estrogen. So that, yes, if you're not, you know, and that kind of gets into the whole thought process of functional medicine is that you should be looking at the person as a whole and, you know, looking at their diet, looking at their gut, looking at the toxin levels, et cetera, looking at all the hormones too, because that that's a hard part with hormones is 
Sometimes the symptoms of low thyroid look exactly like the symptoms of too much cortisol or the symptoms of low testosterone or of estrogen dominance. So the symptoms can really overlap. So when I'm working with hormones, I like to look at all of them because I could be totally convinced somebody has low thyroid, but it turns out to be something totally different. Because of things like that, that your testosterone could be converted to estrogen, these are all things that should be tested and you should work with a physician who has some experience with it, that knows what labs to order and when. Probably like my most, one of my most hated things out there are the hormone clinics. There's a lot of clinics out there that basically anybody who walks through the door is getting put on hormones. What makes me like the maddest about that is, is that a lot of times those clinics are calling themselves functional medicine clinics. That is not at all. It's like the opposite of functional medicine, but by saying it's a functional medicine clinic, it's good for business. And I think I, I wrote it in the book and I, I always warn patients, if you're going to a clinic that all they want to do is hormones, that that's not the right thing. There's you know, the, there's that's the easy way to do things a lot of times for a practitioner, but that's not the right way to do things. Now, I'm just thinking, because we're talking about how testosterone could convert to estrogen, you're talking about the negative feedback loop and supplementing hormones and how it affects our hormones. So something like estrogen, where people often deal with an overload, does that mean if you supplement with estrogen, you actually could lower your body's endogenous estrogen production and actually lower your levels in the end? you went off of it? Potentially. Yeah. I mean, that, that's always a concern when you're going to do testosterone, when you're going to do any kind of hormone replacement, what are you telling the gland that should be making the hormone? Right. And will it shut down long-term production of it? Now with me, with like putting women on hormones, I only use progesterone pre-menopause because the most common issue that I find is estrogen dominance. But the way I always describe that, so that's a concern, right? Like if you go on estrogen, you're going to tell the ovaries to stop making it. If you go on testosterone, you're going to tell the testes to stop making it. I'm not putting anybody on it that isn't already very low, right? So if you use me as an example, like my level was under 200 going on it for three years. I mean, my body's making it again on its own with some support, but I don't, I didn't really see any risk and like, I don't really care if my body can't, you know, if I'm going to shut down my body's ability to make it in the long run, because at the age of 32, it already wasn't. So, you know, it's kind of, I was already kind of a lost cause in my opinion, but that is something to consider like the, you know, the long-term effect. And, and that's why I don't like people that are too young to go on hormone replacement. There's so many factors that play a role. And that that's where like when working with hormones, I, I would much rather wait till someone's kind of past their reproductive years before I, we really start messing with the hormones and giving exogenous hormones and potentially suppressing the body's ability to make their own. It definitely does not come without risk of, of going on hormone replacement. The, the most common one that people are no, is thyroid. That's the most common autoimmune disease, Hashimoto's. And low thyroid is, is the most common thing that probably I see. I have seen people that needed to go on thyroid replacement. And then through de detoxing them, through getting their gut right, we've been able to get them off of thyroid hormone. But it's pretty rare. 
it's there's those stories are out there and they happen but it it's once you kind of go down the hormone replacement route you're you're not really turning it around you're not really going back so i did an episode all on progesterone with dr michael platt and he makes the case that you can't really over supplement with progesterone and that it won't downregulate your body's production and i've actually been using progesterone cream for years I mean, years. Do you find issues with progesterone supplementation for women premenopausal? I think the biggest thing that I would worry about is like clotting risk. So sometimes women that go on progesterone can can have increased risk of clotting. So you kind of really have to get a family history and make sure that there's not really any history of clotting. That would be my biggest concern. I I personally think you can overdo anything as as being someone in recovery, I, I know all about like too much of anything is not good. So I would not, I wouldn't say that me, and this is just my opinion, obviously there's different opinions, but for me, I, I would, I am always very careful. Like when I do progesterone replacement, I really prefer capsules and I start at 50 milligrams most of the time with usually a maximum of 200 so I always like to start with the lowest amount and then go up instead of like, you know, I would rather start at 50 and, and give it a few months. And then if we need, let's go up to 100 or 150 versus let's start at 200. You have some kind of side effects and then we have to go back down. I always go slow and I'm cautious with it, but I know there's different ways to go about it. Are Those are oral capsules? Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there the concern that it might be converted into something else in the liver or do you find that it works like that? We get into the liver and how it detoxes and all of that in the book. And anything that you take that gets across the gut lining, the first place it goes is to the liver. Progesterone, I can't think of anything that I would really worry about it being converted to unless there's just too much of it and your body can't break it down. So like if you're taking too much of it, I think it could be a problem. But I don't, I don't know of anything like I, I don't worry about the conversion of it when I put a woman on it personally. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year and I would love to hang out with you guys and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. So I'm on thyroid medication and I have been also for years, actually by the same doctor that originally prescribed me the progesterone. And it's a situation where... I've been on it for so long. When I first went on it, it really helped me a lot, especially with my constipation and GI issues. I've often thought like, I actually don't know if I need to be on it, but like it's been so long and it's been like playing with the levels. It's it's just very confusing. And so when it comes to thyroid, I don't know the exact stats on thyroid medication. And I don't remember if you have them in the book, but like how many people are on thyroid medications and how many people do you think need to be and how many people do you think are on the incorrect dosage? I think all those numbers are are pretty high. I don't have exact statistics on it. I I have my patient population, which people that come to me, I'd probably say it's like 25%, maybe more are on thyroid replacement of some sort. I think there's a ton of people being undiagnosed that that should be being diagnosed with thyroid with a low thyroid and so I definitely get into that in in that's the first hormone that I wrote about was the thyroid because it is the most common I think that the biggest issue with not enough people being diagnosed as low thyroid is the fact that traditional medicine is just relying on TSH levels and the analogy that I love to to understand whether we're talking about the signals from the brain to the testes or the signal from the brain to the thyroid, your pituitary gland is like your thermostat. And in Chicago or Montana, the places that I live, when winter's hitting, you set the temperature to 70 degrees. When the thermostat detects that the temperature has gone below 70 degrees, it sends a signal to the heater to turn it on and and you make heat until it's 70 degrees and then it shuts off again. The pituitary gland sets a number for the thyroid of how high your level should be. And if the levels go below that, it releases TSH from the pituitary gland and it goes from the brain to the thyroid and tells you to make more thyroid. So if a TSH is elevated, we assume that the thyroid is low. I, I mean, I, the statistic on that, I think probably 85% of just regular doctors are just using that TSH value. For me, having learned functional medicine, it drives me completely nuts because it, it's not an indicator at all of what your thyroid levels are. And what I've seen over and over again is people who have a normal TSH So the level is normal. So the doctor tells them they're fine, but they have constipation and they have low energy and their skin is dry and their hair is falling out. And they're reading all the symptoms of low thyroid online. They're like, I have low thyroid, but the doctor won't order anything besides the TSH. And then they come to me and we order the free T4 levels, the free T3 levels. 
and they come back low or they come back at the low end of normal. And I think kind of getting into your question about what's the right level for people who should be on it. I don't believe in just using the lab values. So if I tested someone and they're at the low end of T4 and they're at the low end of T3, but their energy is good, their hair is fine, they're moving their bowels every day, I wouldn't put them on thyroid replacement. Like your symptoms, like you talked about, in the presence of having a low thyroid, I would say, yeah, let's go on thyroid replacement and see how you respond to it. And it sounds like it was very good for you. But, you know, is it something that you need to stay on forever? The only way to find out is to try stopping it, right? And one of the things I talk about is, is my preferred method for testing if someone is on thyroid medicine. So many people are told by their doctors that if you're on thyroid medicine, when we're going to check your levels, don't take your medicine the day of the test. I do the opposite. I tell people to take their medicine and to get their levels drawn three to five hours after taking the medicine. So if you take your thyroid medicine at 6 a.m., get your blood drawn between 9 and 11. That's because the, the medication has a half-life to where it, you need to take it every day because it goes away after a day. And I want to know what your levels... So if you came to me and, and you were like, hey, I want to know if I should still be taking this thyroid medicine... I would say, let's start with free T4, free T3 levels, TSH, thyroid antibodies, if there's been any, or if you haven't had them tested in a while. And let's see where you're at in the range. And if the range looks good and you're wanting to get off of it, I would say, you know, depending on what your dose is. And can I ask what medication you're taking? Right now I'm on compounded NDT and compounded synthetic T3 so that my doc can like specifically change the T3 levels. Sure. And I assume you guys have gone up, you guys go down with the levels. And I think that that's a good way to do it. And I think the biggest thing that I do different is, is like, at least in regular medicine, like they start medications and then they don't ever give you a game plan for coming off of them. It's just like, either we're going to add to it or we're going to change it. I've always operated with like, let's do as little as possible to get you feeling good so if your ranges look okay and you want to come off of it, then let's try lowering it. And that, that I think too, is where functional medicine really, you know, we try to be individualized. And again, I would never tell you or any patient like, all right, well, your levels are getting too high. And so you have to stop it, you know, unless... I would, unless they're getting really high, then I would say you have to stop it. But if they're at the high end, but you feel good and you don't want to come off of it, you don't want to lower your dose. I wouldn't say like you have to lower your dose, but the thyroid is very dynamic. It, it changes. I mean, I, most people like we can find a dose and, and they're steady on it. They take it every day. They're fine. But I have a, quite a few patients where every six months we're going up and then the next we're going down and it, it can jump around. So it's definitely something that needs to be monitored for most people, but then also a lot of people find their dose and they're, they're able to just stick with it. I'm just so passionate about this topic because like you said, I think so many people are misdiagnosed or not diagnosed. And then so many have that experience of the doctor just looking at the TSH. And then on top of that, I've had a few experiences in my history of being on thyroid medication where I really 
like had a bad experience. Like at one point I was on T4, T3. I'm not sure if it was like NDT or compounded, but in any case, my doctor wanted to try to lower my reverse T3 that was high. So she pulled me off of T4 and just put me on T3. And I literally felt like I was dying. Like literally, I, I think that that was like much too, like, I think that was like a dangerous switch to have made. And, and then a more recent thing that happened, and I'd be curious your thoughts on this. This is a different doctor that I'm with now, but my uh, T3 was low. So she wanted to raise it, but she was worried about my TSH becoming suppressed which I would love to hear your thoughts on suppressed TSH on thyroid medication. Literally what she did made no sense. She was like, we got to lower your T4 to like fix this. And like, she was so concerned about keeping the TSH not suppressed. So I sent her all of these studies on suppressed TSH levels and whether or not they correlated to issues if you're on medication. What are your thoughts on suppressed TSH on thyroid medication? I worry in older people. I don't like a suppressed TSH in my older patients. I think when you're younger, it's okay. But the older you get, I think that there's some studies out there that kind of suggest that it it can be a problem. So that's where I'm careful is if I'm working with an older patient, I don't want their TSH to be too suppressed. For younger people, how did your doctor respond to all the the research you sent her? (laughs) Well, well, a little caveat that I need to make is she didn't calculate it correctly because she was like, we need to lower your NDT so that the T4 gets lowered so I can raise your T3. But the net, like the net difference, and this is why I just want to empower patients to have agency and looking at their lab work. Like the net difference was actually not raising my T3 because of how she was affecting my NDT. Kind of a bad example. It's interesting. This With the studies I sent, I reached a very similar conclusion as you that possibly in older populations, there might be an issue. I think <laughs> I sent her so much stuff. And then finally she was just, she didn't really answer me. I think she was, I don't know if she was embarrassed um, at me, like drilling her on the the actual numbers, but she ultimately said, okay, yes, we can do this and then retest, which that's a question for you. How often do you retest? Because when I was with my other more holistic doctor, she was retesting much sooner, like a month or so, but this doctor will wait like three or six months, which seems a long time. Yeah, definitely not. I don't wait that long. It, I mean, if I'm not changing a dose, like if everything's just status quo, then yeah, sure. Six months and maybe a year. But if I've changed someone's dose, I'm actually usually repeating somewhere between like three and six weeks. I I don't, you know, it, it, it can be a pretty serious, you know, shock to the body. You don't, you know, and sometimes we don't know you know, that's, that's the hard part with, with practicing medicine is you don't know how somebody's going to respond. You, 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 you trust what you've learned in the books and then you trust your experience with patients. But thyroid is something that, that can be dangerous if you overdo it, right? Like you can send someone into an arrhythmia. I've seen some crazy stories lately of, of patients going to emergency rooms, being told to take thyroid medicine and, and it's just completely the wrong thing. I thyroid because it, you know, thyroid hormone, the best way I think about it is, is just like stimulating. It, it kind of speeds things up, makes things grow. I'm always very cautious with it. So whether I'm lowering someone's dose or whether I'm raising it, if I'm changing your dose of medication, I, I really don't want to go past a month to, to check in how that change is happening. A lot of patients won't follow up because the change that we made, their 
happy with so they don't go get their blood drawn and they're not I can't force them to but I would really prefer if I'm adjusting your dose to check in I mean maybe 6 weeks but I wouldn't go definitely would not go longer than 6 weeks Yeah that actually happened to my grandfather they put him on the wrong thyroid dose like it was way too high and made him super hyperthyroid and it was like a big issue but okay I got so excited when you started talking about testing after still taking the hormone or taking your medication, because I have thought about this for years because everybody says, don't take your medication before the test. And that makes no sense to me. It literally makes zero sense logically. Like if we're testing to see what you're at on the medication, shouldn't you test when you're on the medication? Anytime that I'm kind of saying something that kind of goes against, you know, what everybody else is saying or, or, I, to me, anything that I do with my patients, I ha- it has to make sense to me. Like I, you know, I, I have to be able to explain what I'm doing and why I'm doing it because I work with a lot of very smart people and, and they ask good questions and, and they'll know if I'm full of shit or not. And so I need to be able to explain things that I'm doing. And I don't know where it came from for the, the not testing or telling people to not take their medicine. If the if you're on thyroid replacement and we want to know how you're doing on it, don't we want to see what your biologically available levels are after you've taken the medicine? I I got actually really lucky when I my first practice when I left residency, I was actually in Destin, Florida, and I I rented a space in this multi kind of facet clinic. And there was Destin is over by Eglin Air Force Base. So this military doc there, all he did was thyroid. I think he was doing a little aggressively, like he literally put everybody on thyroid. But me and him used to kind of talk in in the lunchroom or whatever, and, and I was just really getting started. But he influenced me a lot with thyroid because, that, I mean, that's literally all he did. So he was pretty well versed in it. And so, I mean, this was literally when I started my career on my own. And he's the one that was kind of like, he's like, listen, I only test my patients after they've taken their medicine three to five hours. And I kind of thought about what I had been taught or what we told people. And I thought about what he was saying. And I was like, that makes a lot more sense to me. Like what we want to, if you're taking it, we want to know what your levels are. Like, how does it help to know what your levels are off of it, then that, that, that just doesn't make sense. So yeah, I, I'm glad that you agree. And, and, you know, I can explain that to someone. I couldn't really explain to someone why I would want them to not take their medicine the day we're testing how that medicine's working for them. It's so interesting to me because like you said, it, it's conventional practice, but then also like I've had two guests on the show that are very well known in this sphere and very involved with the thyroid and they come from, you know, this functional approach. And they also say to not take it the day of the test. And I've never, not that I'm challenging them, but I've never really like challenged them on it because I'm like, okay, I must just be wrong about this. But so this, (laughs) this is very validating because I've just thought about this for a while. Like the way I get around it is I actually take my thyroid medication at night anyways. So I still get the effect of testing while on my normal schedule. The one thing I would say about that, you know, there's a lot with anything like, you know, you're going to get, as you know, as you talk to a lot of very smart people all the time, like, you know, there's 
two very, very smart people that have had very good success working with thyroid could take two totally different approaches. That's okay, right? I mean, from the patient perspective, you you know, my advice always is to go with who you trust, who sounds like they know what they're talking about or who you've had success with. I was kind of taught too that like, you know, if someone is going to test, just do the testing the same way every time. So if your doctor is managing you, you're doing okay. Every time you do the test, you don't take your medicine. That's fine. And you have some consistent values, but they, I mean, I've heard of the doctors don't tell their patients. When I ask my patients, when they come in with thyroid results, I'm like, did you take your medicine or did you not? I don't remember. Did your doctor tell you what to do? No, they just gave me the lab order. That's a disaster, right? That That's when you're getting into really malpractice or just like not helping someone. But if you follow the same thing, I, I believe that there's different ways to go about doing the same thing. I think it's okay just to be aware, like, Hey, like I'm telling my patients, yes, take your medicine. No, don't take your medicine. Just do it the same every time. So even if they go to another doctor, they know what to say. Like, yes, my doctor always had me take my medicine or no, they didn't. Yeah. This is one reason I just love your work so much because you do a really good job of both providing a, a very extensive overview and your personal experience and perspective, but then also, you know, providing agency to people to work with other doctors and find what works for them. So I super, super appreciate that. My, my favorite thing about this book, we were kind of talking about the lab values is in the thyroid chapter specifically, like I list all the thyroid tests, what are normal ranges, what are optimal ranges, how to interpret that. This was my, sorry, I never interrupt. This was my favorite part though. I was going to tell you, like you have this amazing like list of, is this what you were talking about? Where it's like how a person's thyroid panel might present and then what the root cause probably is related to that. Is that what you're talking about? It's so helpful. Sorry, I interrupted. I just, it's so great. Go ahead. (laughs) I can't wait to get either like the hate mail from traditional doctors or like just the, the, the excitement from patients. I think that, I mean, in a lot of ways, people are going to be more educated than their, the provider that they're seeing, unfortunately, like in how to look at their labs. So I think a lot of people who read my book might end up getting fired by their doctors, but that's probably a good thing in the end if your doctor's not willing to work with you. But instead of just accepting that my doctor is just going to test my TSH. And even though I have every symptom of low thyroid, people can use that chapter on the thyroid. I mean, there's charts of all the different labs and what normal and what's optimal. And, and you know, they can go into their doctor and be like, no, like this isn't right. And if their doctor is, is saying, no, the only thing we need to test is TSH, then it's like, all right, well, it's time to find a new doctor that is willing to at least test the T4 and the T3 levels. I was like highlighting it and starring it. It's like when you're reading something and you find like this really like nugget of gold. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. Do you ever test RT3, reverse T3? Does it inform your practice? So so this is where I'm different than probably a lot of functional medicine people. I personally kind of hate reverse T3 because what reverse T3 is, is that your thyroid gland makes T4 and T4 is converted peripherally to T3. And there's a number of factors that can cause 
the T4 to be converted to reverse T3. Reverse T3 is a form of T3 that is not active. So it'll go and try to bind to cells and try to function like T3, but it doesn't. So in theory, if there's too much of it, it could almost make you have like symptoms of low thyroid. Now, so that's why a lot of most practitioners in in my world are using it. They order reverse T3. For me, the reason why your reverse T3 would be elevated would be due to toxins, due to gut imbalances, due to your diet, due to a lack of sleep, due to stress. We're going to be working on all those things anyway. So for me, reverse T3 doesn't change my treatment plan. And I'm all about ordering tests that will change my treatment plan. And I don't need to see a reverse T3 to test you for heavy metals like lead and mercury. Or if you've had a history of water exposed buildings or water damaged buildings, I'm going to test you for mold no matter what your reverse T3 says. So I don't find it valuable in changing like the way people feel or my clinical outcomes or helping me decide what to order next. And again, that that's a personal approach of mine. And that's my reasoning for why I take that approach. But I know there's a lot of people out there that are really into thyroid that love the reverse T3 number. I've always just tested mine. Like I said, I had that, that issue where it was sky high and that's what informed my doctor's change in medication, which the switch she made didn't really help me. See, that, that almost kind of proves my point a little bit too, right? Like that, you know, they, they tried changing your, your regimen based on, yeah, and it, it didn't work out well for you. That doesn't mean it doesn't work out well for everybody, but that's kind of a, a kind of validates what I'm saying, I guess. So another hormone, because you, you have um, the seven most common impactful hormones that you talk about in the book. And one of the sections is cortisol. And I know there is this question that haunts so many people about adrenal fatigue and is adrenal fatigue real? And you have your own perspective on adrenal fatigue. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this mysterious adrenal fatigue. Yeah. So like the Academy of like endocrinology, I don't know exactly what it's called, but the group of endocrinologists basically have come out flat out and said like adrenal fatigue is not real. It's not a diagnosis. It's not something to test for. It's not real. So just so people know that aren't that familiar with it, that's what a traditional medicine doc, traditional doctor is going to be. That's the viewpoint they'll be coming from is that adrenal fatigue is not a real condition. There's the extreme position of functional medicine doctors that most people have severe adrenal fatigue. And that's the primary thing that a lot of people that have gone to functional medicine practitioners have been told that they have adrenal fatigue and to take these supplements and it'll make everything better. I, yeah, I guess I fall somewhere in between in regards to, I definitely think adrenal fatigue is a very real thing. I also think that basically every one of us has it. So I think that everybody does have it. But most people, when they think of adrenal fatigue, they think of a flat cortisol curve. So the best way to diagnose adrenal fatigue, in my opinion, is saliva cortisol testing. 
And saliva cortisol testing basically means that you spit into a tube four times throughout the day, 7 a.m., 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 10 p.m., roughly. And for all of us, our cortisol starts the highest after waking up, and then it goes down in the middle of the day and uh, pretty rapidly. And then it kind of smooths out or balances out the rest of the day. It kind of consistently goes down until you go to bed, and then it pops back up in the morning. When most people who have read about adrenal fatigue or think they have it, they assume that their cortisol lines are going to be flat. So in a, in a normal, quote unquote, normal test, the, the cortisol curve would follow a bell curve starting high and going down. In what most people think of when they think of adrenal fatigue, the lines would be totally flat. Like basically you're not making cortisol anymore. People think that their adrenal glands are just completely have given up. So that's where, where I like, I completely agree. Adrenal fatigue is a very, very, very real thing, but it's not like as severe on labs as people think it is. So some people argue there's three stages of adrenal fatigue. Some people argue there's four. To me, stage one would basically be is like you have one or two elevated or depressed cortisol levels. Stage two would be that you have you know a few of them imbalanced, whether they're high or low. So I personally would diagnose adrenal fatigue even if all your cortisol readings are high. So that sounds kind of weird. Your cortisol is high, but I'm saying you have adrenal fatigue. To me, it just means that you're, you're really activating your adrenal glands. So they're going to be getting tired and you can't live your whole life with your cortisol being through the roof from morning to night. So to me, technically that's a form of, you know, maybe a better term for it is like adrenal imbalance. Some people label it as stage one adrenal fatigue, but Basically, everybody, the majority of people, I don't know, it's not everybody, but the majority of people that I test for salivary cortisol are coming back imbalanced to some degree. So that, I guess, is, is a little bit of my opinion on it. I think it's very, very real. And so oh, actually, before I finish, the other thing that a salivary cortisol test looks at is DHEA levels. And DHEA is a precursor to making androgens like estradiol, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. We have one building block for our hormones, and that is cholesterol. We turn cholesterol into cortisol. We turn it into DHEA, which then eventually becomes estradiol or testosterone or progesterone, et cetera. So we have what we say is one substrate, that you have a limited amount of cholesterol to make all these different hormones right? But since there's a limited amount, if you're under chronic stress, the body will choose to make cortisol. So it will make cortisol over all other hormones because that's kind of like your life or death. And if you're chronically stressed out, you've told your body that you're in a life or death situation. So you're trying to survive. So you're making cortisol and you'll stop making the other hormones. So for a man, it could be that you're making less testosterone. That definitely could have been part of my story. For a woman, you know, it could present as estrogen dominance, that you're not making enough progesterone. So on a saliva cortisol test, they also will give you 
the num uh, a level of DHEA. And to me, how I differentiate somebody who's under acute stress versus chronic stress is either one of those people are going to have elevated cortisols. But then what I want to look at to determine whether it's acute or chronic is the DHEA levels. And if the DHEA levels are low, that to me suggests that it's more chronic. And, and they specifically term that cortisol steal, where because, you know, and there's different reasons for stress, but because of chronic stress, cortisol is stealing away your ability to make other hormones. So I, I love adrenal gland testing for, for people that have read my first book. They know how passionate I am about the mental, emotional, and spiritual health. I like to call the adrenal gland test my version of a stress test. So your cardiologist or the emergency room uses a cardiac stress test to stress to find out how your heart is doing. I use adrenal gland testing to see how well are you managing your mental, emotional, and spiritual health. So I very, very, very much believe that adrenal fatigue is a thing, but for most people, it doesn't hit that last stage. So that last stage would present as low DHEA and basically flat cortisol curves where the, 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 so anybody that's seen an adrenal test would know what I'm talking about is that just the cortisol lines would be flat. So that would be the last stage. And to me, that would be true, true adrenal fatigue where you're not making cortisol, the DHEA is low and your adrenal glands are literally shot. I've done a lot of adrenal gland tests over the years and I've only seen like a true, true, true adrenal fatigue once and it was at an environmental medicine clinic in Martha's Vineyard where somebody was very, very toxic, environmentally toxic. So their lines were flat and I've never seen it again. So to me, people fall either between stage one and stage two of adrenal fatigue. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. 
It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. You literally just answered my question. I was fascinated because you mentioned in the book that you've only seen it once. So I was, I was wondering what was going on with that person. Toxins. One thing about the adrenals, I find it so fascinating because like you said, on the one hand, you have the official stance that adrenal fatigue is not real. Then you have really, especially in the functional world, people thinking everything is adrenal fatigue and everybody's adrenals are like just not working. I actually, the episode that's airing this week right now is with Ari Witten and he mentions in his book, he talks about cortisol levels and how the actual like data on cortisol levels, like most people don't get a deficit of cortisol. Even if they're like severely fatigued, it's not usually that case that you mentioned where there's literally not cortisol going on. So definitely think there's a reframe that needs to happen here for a lot of people. Yeah. I think that the hard part is just that people read about adrenal fatigue, they have symptoms of it. So they just assume that their adrenal glands are totally shot and it, they're not. Our, our bodies are very, 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 very resilient. They despite how much we try to screw up our bodies, they are very, they fight hard to keep you going. So yeah, that's definitely the word that I, I'm trying to get out there about adrenal fatigue is that I do believe it's very real, but for the most part, it's not as bad as you can be made to believe. And the solution is really, and this is my opinion, is not supplements. One of the first patients I ever saw on my own came to me, they had been working with a chiropractor and the chiropractor had diagnosed them with adrenal fatigue and sold them $3,000 worth of supplements and, and, and said, okay, you have adrenal fatigue and here buy all these supplements. I 
hate that also because I hate I hate things that give functional medicine a bad name. There's very few things that supplements are the answer for, especially $3,000 worth of them. You know, it's a multifaceted approach. There, there's a lot of things that need to happen. To me, the real treatment for adrenal fatigue is to dig into what traumas do I have, what stress do I have, what insecurities do I have, et cetera. That, I think you can, if you dig into that stuff, you can heal the adrenal glands without a, a single supplement. Yeah, I think that is so, so important because people really just go down the supplement approach to try and fix things rather than the holistic approach. So now I think listeners, you can understand, we've just barely scratched the surface on everything that's in this book and get the funk out about the hormones. So you can learn so, so much about all of them and what may be going on in your body. So definitely, definitely check it out. Even like you have a section on the pancreas and insulin, for example, and even a paradigm shift there, you talk about how most people think about the pancreas, like the main thing is insulin with food release, but really the majority of production from the pancreas is with pancreatic enzymes. So just a lot of paradigm shifts there. So stepping back a little bit, (laughs) we went deep into these hormones and how they get off and imbalanced and what's happening. But so chicken or egg, hormonal imbalances, are they causing health issues or is there underlying health issues that cause the hormonal imbalances? A huge portion of the book is the role of toxins in our environment and mold and heavy metals is that always the root cause of hormonal imbalances? That was like some big, vague questions. But yes, toxic burden. What What is happening with toxic burden today with people? Yeah, I would never say it's all just one thing. So I would never say it's just toxins that are causing hormonal imbalances. But I do believe that the main reason we are seeing low testosterone in a 32-year-old like me when I was diagnosed or estrogen dominance in 16 year olds, or one of the things I get into is like how early puberty is happening for boys and girls. And I make the argument in the book that the main reason it's happening or that it's increasing at such a rapid rate is the rapid rate of toxins that are being added to our environment. Year after year, we're adding more stuff to our day-to-day lives. And when toxins are present, so I guess to, to start like with the basics, when we talk about toxins, there are things that are basically like not naturally in our body. So toxins can be in your food, toxins can be in the air, they could be in water, I go in the introduction of the book, I go through like an example of my wife's routine of like going to bed to waking up to all the like most basic things that you would never think of where you would be be being exposed to toxins. For example, I quote some studies that on memory foam mattresses. So they've found over 80 different chemicals or toxins in memory foam mattresses. And I'll never forget, I, I, I bought a memory foam mattress. And then I think the next day I went to California for a conference on environmental medicine. And I think the first lecture was about memory foam mattresses. And I was just like, I can't believe I have to throw this thing out now. Because, you know, I don't think about it. Like if I'm buying a mattress, I'm not thinking about how many toxins are in it. And 
I'm not going to think about that until I find out, well, hey, wait a minute, why do I have low testosterone at such a young age? Well, why would it be happening? Well, maybe it's the 80 chemicals that I'm breathing while I'm sleeping when my, my immune system should be restoring and, and my liver should be re- regenerating and restoring and getting rid of all the crap that I was exposed to all day. Instead, I'm just breathing in all this new stuff. So it, there are any kind of substances that are foreign to our body. They, they've been putting more of them out there to make our lives easier, to make plastic, to make bottles, to drink water out of our furniture is covered in uh, flame retardants. So if there's a fire, your whole house doesn't burn down as fast. Sunscreen. I don't have a study to prove this, but I, I've, ever since I was younger, started getting into functional medicine, I've always thought that one of the main reasons skin cancer is so common, it, it could have something to do with all the chemicals and toxins in sunscreen. I think the most shocking thing is for women with hair, beauty, makeup products. I've read different studies, but pretty consistently, like the average woman is exposed to like a hundred different chemicals before she's like done getting ready for the day. That's not good, right? I mean, at least we don't know if it's good because they never studied it. They never like, were like, okay, we're going to release a few trillion different chemicals into our environment, but first let's study it for 40 years to see how humans are going to respond to it. It's like, well, no, this makes your phone faster. This makes your food quicker. So let's do it. And then we'll find out, we'll deal with the consequences later. Right. So, you know, there's been this rapid increase in, in all the stuff they're putting in our environment for 40, 50 years. This crazy chart that I wasn't allowed to put in the book, but there, there's a chart of comparing the use of glyphosate to the rates of autism. And basically, as you see the glyphosate use, which glyphosate is the main component of Roundup, which is kind of one of the most famous toxins, but you see the, you know, the rate of autism in the 1980s was one in a few thousand to now it's like less than one in 40 children. And obviously they, they won't let you do causation studies. I've met scientists from around the world that have some pretty crazy stories that were trying to do studies on things like glyphosate and how their careers were attacked or how they were basically kind of taken out by the powers that be for doing that kind of research. So all we really have are correlation studies, right? Like, okay, 50 years ago, we had way fewer toxins. Our rate of autism was way less. Now the world is way more toxic. And it's not just autism. And and I'm not at all saying that just glyphosate or Roundup causes autism, just stating correlation studies. But to me, it's during that time, it's all the different toxins have increased. And our bodies have a limited capacity of detoxing. So we can all get rid of a certain number of things a day. Let's say my body's ability is 100. I can get rid of 100 toxins a day. Well, in 1970, I would have been exposed to 10. There's no problem. 2022, I'm exposed to 1,000 toxins every day. Well, 900 are going to get built up. And those could build for your entire life. And eventually, the hard part with it is, is if you're being exposed to too much lead or too much mercury or too much mold, 
for the most part, you're not going to get symptoms. You're not going to know it. You're not going to feel it. You're not going to, or the symptoms that you have, you'd, you'd never guess that they were from some kind of toxin exposure. Usually people don't know it's in, until it's too late, until they present with Hashimoto's or with lupus or with low testosterone or with type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes, that the toxins have already destroyed the organs and now it's being diagnosed as a disease. So toxins, I think, are the biggest thing, honestly, that's being missed in medicine. I have my experience from working with patients of detoxing people, and I go into some patient studies and, and things that I've seen happen through getting the toxins out, and it's pretty incredible how big of a role they're playing. And just in general, just some more basics is basically toxins try to get into our body. They try to cross through our skin. They try to cross through our gut. And if you have a leaky gut, they're more likely to get in. They also try to get in through our lungs. And your lungs make secretions that try to keep things out. You have cilia that try to push the stuff out. But again, due to the amount of stuff we're being exposed to, the toxins can cross across the skin, across the gut, through the lungs, and into the body. Luckily for us, the first place that those toxins are sent are to your liver. And your liver is kind of your most famous detox organ. Your liver, what it does is this process called phase one and phase two of detox. And what it does to those toxins is make them water soluble. In, by nature or in nature, those toxins are fat soluble. So if your liver doesn't do anything, fat soluble means that once they get in, they will stay there. They will get stored. So we're very lucky that our bodies are designed that the first place the body takes those toxins is to the liver to break them down. So the liver breaks them down, they're water soluble, and then you can pee, poop, and sweat them out. That's how you get them out. If you overwhelm the liver by you know just too many toxins where it can't keep up, or all those detox processes that happen in the liver, you need vitamins and minerals for those processes to function. So if your diet sucks, you, you know, if you don't get enough nutrition, you can impair your body's ability to detox. Or if you just have too many toxins, your body can't keep up. So they're going to get stored and they're going to build and they're going to build. And eventually you're going to present at a doctor's office with some kind of disease that you didn't want to get when it could have been prevented just by testing. So me personally, I would start testing for toxins from the age of like three. I think instead of like most of the useless tests that your traditional doctor orders on your yearly visit, the number one tests that I would do are your levels of heavy metals, your levels of glyphosate, the levels of mold if you've been exposed to mold. I think that would be true preventative medicine, in my opinion. So another huge problem, I mean, regular medicine has a lot of problems with testing for toxins or even acknowledging that toxins play a role in disease. The level of elevation doesn't correlate with symptoms. So what that means is let's use, we're going to use just totally arbitrary numbers, but let's say lead, we're testing your levels of lead and let's say normal is less than two and you test positive for 10 
and another person tests positive for 50 and another person with 100. The person that had the level of 100 might feel totally fine. The person with the level of 10 might have autoimmune disease. And so that gets into, again, that we're all individuals and these toxins affect us differently. And regular medicine, they really like want the standard, like, okay, well, if your level was 10, then you get Hashimoto's. If your level was 50, then you get lupus. If it's a hundred, then you get diabetes. Like it, it unfortunately doesn't, or fortunately, it doesn't work like that when it comes to toxins. We all respond differently to them. And somebody with a low level can feel can have symptoms than somebody with much higher levels. So that makes it a little difficult, I think. I am so passionate about all of this. So I'm just thrilled to hear you talk about this. And I was thinking about it. There's only one brand that I talk about on every single episode of every single podcast for both of my shows, and it's Beauty Counter. And it's because they're addressing the skincare and makeup issue by creating products that are free of endocrine disruptors. Because if you... Nice. Yeah, I'm obsessed with them. Like they're a founder of the company. She founded it because it was either like her sister or her friend or somebody had fertility issues and a miscarriage. And she started doing research on toxins and their connection to fertility and realized that how big of an issue it was and how skincare and makeup, especially in the US, is one of the largest sources of exposure, especially for women. It's so upsetting. Like in Europe, how they've banned over a thousand compounds from skincare makeup. In the US, they've banned 11, which is ridiculous. I think the craziest thing in writing my book was that basically, you know, the FDA regulates all types of things or the government regulates all types of things, but basically like beauty company product companies that are making like skincare or beauty products are basically kind of told to regulate themselves. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny, but it is. I mean, it's it's just insane. And the FDA has, they have no power to call products off the shelves, which we've seen happen. Like there have been moments where, I, I remember something happened with like Claire's, like, like there'll be moments where they'll realize that there's some really toxic product, but nothing is done. The FDA literally can't pull products off the shelves. And I don't think they, um if you, oh, if you go to the... <laughs> Sorry, this makes me so upset. If you go to the government website, I think it's on the FDA, they have a section on testing for basically for the safety of these products and why they don't test or regulate. And I just have to put a link in the show notes because it's something to the effect of, I just have to find it. It's basically, they just say they don't really have time to sort of like, basically they're like, well, we don't really know it's a problem and we don't really have time to like test this. And and we trust the companies that are making tons of money that are probably funding us to test it and, you know, that they're going to put safe products out there and not worry about products that are going to make them the most money. We're just going to trust that they care about, you know, people's health and safety. Yeah. It's a major issue. And you were talking about how like the tests that are conducted for safety. And one of the issues there is that, so if they do do safety tests, they typically test the individual isolated one compound. They'll do it in vivo, like super high amount, like on a cell. It's not at all reflective of how, or they probably do low amounts too, but it's not at all reflective of how we're exposed to these chemicals daily building up in our bloodstream. And it doesn't account for the cocktail effect, which is where chemicals interact with each other and become more toxic. And it's just, 
frustrating. <laughs> this is my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that's probably the, if I could just get people to understand one thing about these toxins is it's not just like one. So it's not going to be just like some chemical in your lipstick. It, it's the combination of all this stuff. And that's, and I think the best example is glyphosate and from Roundup. And, and that's one of the most famous toxins, but the main way that Monsanto got around saying glyphosate was safe at these levels was by testing it alone. And Roundup is not just glyphosate. Like there's a ton of different chemicals in there. And researchers that I've met now from, again, from around the world were kind of trying to scream like, no, stop testing, stop doing these studies on just the glyphosate. Do it on the Roundup. And that's kind of like what our bodies have become is this mixture of Roundup, but we're throwing heavy metals and we're throwing all the, the herbicides and the insecticides, the pesticides, all this stuff, the organophosphates, the flame retardants, that stuff, all of that stuff is mixing and, and it's sitting in your thyroid and it's sitting in my testes and in, in your ovaries and accumulating in your nervous system. And then it's like, well, why are so many people getting diagnosed with MS? Well, no, it, it, it's not, you know, it's not glyphosate. It's not just lead. And they're getting away with this and, and just saying like, well, it's not lead specifically doesn't cause MS. And these are just kind of random examples. But no, I'm, I'm not saying it's one thing either. I'm saying it's, it's a combination of all these things that for the wrong person, for the unlucky person, that, you know, there's a reason that our immune systems are identifying our thyroid as an invader, right? Because these glands are getting full of all this junk and the body wants to help you. The body wants to get rid of that. So I just love that that's, that's the most important point. And it's not, you know, just one of these things. It's, it's all of them in combination, this cocktail that we're getting from morning to night and even all night that some of our bodies just can't keep up with. And your mattress story, like it's things we don't even think of. And I just have to, I experienced a really intense toxic burden, particularly with heavy metals. Like my blood mercury was over 30, which I interviewed Chris Shade at Quicksilver Scientific. And he, he even worked with like Tony Robbins with his heavy metal toxicity. And when I told him that he was like, oh, you'd be on my wall of fame. I was like, oh, okay. It was bad. I again, thought I was dying, but I'm grateful for it because it, really tuned me into the the effect that toxins have. And it really made me go into like detox mode. But I remember I was trying to find a mattress. And so legally mattresses have to have flame retardants. So it is so hard to find a mattress with a natural flame retardant. And I finally found one, which I adore. I, I love it. It's called my green mattress, I think. But it's really funny because they use some sort of goat hair as the flame retardant that like legally qualifies. And when you first get it and they say this in the reviews, like it smells like goats and like literally like, like the first night I, I was dreaming about, I thought I was in a barn. Like, <laughs> so I love how you talked about, and I love you have a really extensive list in the book of all of these potential toxins like you were talking about with testing for toxins. I mean, clearly we're not testing for all of these things that are in like skincare and makeup because I highly doubt there are tests that are going to look at all of these compounds. But there are things like you said with mold and, and mercury. So when you find somebody with a high toxic burden, 
How do you go about that? Like with the heavy metals, I did do a lot of pharmaceutical chelation, which that's another soapbox for me now, because I think if I could go back, I I might've still done it because of how bad it was, but I would not have done it as aggressively. And I would have paid big attention to remineralization. Did you do IV or oral or? or? I did IV and I did a lot of pushes. So I primarily did DMPS because I found, I I was like reading all the studies on DMSA, EDTA and DMPS and trying to see which one pulled out the most mercury with the least amount of collateral damage. And it seemed to be DMPS, but I did all of them. And I think I pulled out a lot of nutrients out of my body because I was so desperate. I was like, I got to get this mercury out, especially with that like 30, you know, over 30 blood test. Yeah, that's really high level. Yeah. So how do you approach testing and like chelation for heavy metals with your patients? And then also it's a two-part question, also things like mold. Yeah. And and I would just comment that there are, we can test some of those other toxins like the flame retardants, like some of the stuff that's in the Bath and Beauty products. It is a lab called Great Plains Lab, which is one of my favorite labs to use. And we call it like the non-metal toxin profile. I got to get this. Yeah. So you can test, obviously, I mean, they'll never be able to keep up with the amount of stuff being added, but you can test some of it for sure. Those type of toxins are hard to catch. Even on that test, they seem to get out of our bodies faster. So I don't see that many positive results despite how much we're being exposed. But heavy metals are the number one toxin that I would start with for anybody. I don't use blood testing. You have to have very like significant exposure. Blood, you can test in the stool. You can test hair. I, I use urine personally because that's where we get rid of the toxins. For somebody that you're suspecting like an acute toxicity, I would definitely do blood testing. But people that are coming to me are not ones with an acute toxicity. If they are, they should be going to the emergency room. So I use pre and post chelation testing. And what that means is, and I get into it very deep in the book and and how to do it. And that's another thing that patients could probably explain their their practitioners how to do it after reading the book. But you do two tests on the same day. You wake up, you pee in a cup, and that that's your pre-test. That measures your active exposure. Another probably like most important thing that people should know when you're talking about toxins, really the only thing that matters in detox, the first step, the last step, and the most important step is to stop exposure. If you don't stop exposure, you're never going to get rid of it. So a pretest, it tells me whether or not someone's being actively exposed. An example I've seen a few times now is people eating sushi three times a week or more are actually testing positive for mercury on a pretest, which is kind of crazy. The pretest measures the active exposure And then what we really care about is how much is built up in your body. So that's where I usually, uh, the overwhelming majority of the time, I use DMSA personally. And so we give a dose of DMSA, 30 milligrams per kilogram. And I give you that, how to calculate that in the book. That is something you would need a prescription for. So you, you can't like go to a supplement store or something and buy DMSA. It is a prescription. 
so we, we calculate your dose, you take this medicine, and then you get this big orange jug and you collect your urine for six hours after taking the chelating medicine. I've done it so many times. <laughs> like picturing the jug. Yeah. So in that jug, you know, you're collecting the six hours of urine. And what's happening is, is that whatever chelating agent you used is pulling what's stored in your body out. And your post, that's called your post-test. Your post-test should look exactly like your pre-test. The amount that you're excreting just at baseline should be the same as the amount that's stored. I very, very rarely see that. I mean, most people do test positive. question is usually just how high. So that's absolutely my preferred test and really the only test that I'm personally doing for heavy metal toxicity. If someone tests positive, I, I prefer chelation therapy. So I've taken a lot of people now through chelation therapy. I guess the main difference with what you did is I, I personally only do oral chelation, so I don't do IV, but I could definitely see why somebody would want to do IV if they were testing that high on blood testing. The main reason I do it is it's, it's just like a lighter form than the, the IV. The biggest side effect of chelating medicines is like you mentioned that it they don't just pull out the toxins, they can also pull out some vitamins and minerals. So the biggest risk of chelation is that you could really deplete someone nutritionally if you don't do it properly. What I do is I put people on a regimen for a month of boosting all the, the vitamins and minerals that are needed for detox. So I will load you up for a month and then chelate for four days and replenish for 10 days. Chelate for four, replenish for 10. And I have my patients just cycling that four days on, 10 days replenishing, four days on, 10 days replenishing. So we're boosting you for an entire month before we start. And then we're replenishing you more than twice as long as we're depleting you. I, yeah, a lot of people I work with, they don't want to take medications. They don't care how high their metals are. So one of the things that I'm offering people more is called modified citrus pectin powder. I talk about it in the book. Pectin powder comes from citrus fruit peels. The, ter- the, the word modified means that they have to modify that pectin powder in order to get it to cross your gut barrier. Otherwise, you would just poop it out. But through the modification that they do, it gets into your blood and then it works as a chelating medicine or chelating agent. I don't, that, that route is slower and chelation at itself takes a long time. Like for somebody with like a low positive level, it usually takes seven months. For some of the higher levels I've seen, it, it can take a couple of years doing it oral. I just, in my experience, the pectin powder doesn't work as quickly and it's already a slow process. The thing I love about chelation is it is the only thing that I do that's 100% effective. It will work if you just follow, if you just take the right stuff on the right days. So that makes it easier, right? Then like a lot of the stuff I do with treating someone's gut or et cetera, they are mold. You have to change all these things, these lifestyle things with chelation. It really is just, you got to remember what to take on what days. 
I think probably another hugely important point, I don't know what your experience has been, but in, in my patients, I don't see people get to a level of zero. And that could be very frustrating for a lot of my patients. It's like they want to get their level all the way down to zero. I was an economics major uh, in college, and there's this law of diminishing returns that eventually too much of something you know, stops doing good. And chelation, in my experience, follows kind of that law of diminishing returns. And so we're able to get people dramatically lower, but I've never seen anyone go to zero. So in just like a, a rough numbers analogy, like lead, normal, less than two. If you're over 10 or higher on a post-chelation test, I will probably recommend chelation with a goal of getting you somewhere between three to five. Ideally, it would be lower, but that's just been my experience. And, I, and I've had some of my patients take it to like the extreme. And, and I always think of a guy that found a rectal chelation program. And so when I couldn't get him all the way down to zero, he tried rectal chelation. It, it also didn't get him to zero. And I, I just personally, I don't know if there's doctors getting people down to zero. I haven't seen it, but I have seen dramatic changes. Uh, the, the patient story that I go through in the book is I had a, a guy who was a truck driver who was on three blood pressure medications. And that's usually when regular medicine is kind of like, crap, we don't know what to do. Like they're already on three there. You're like maxed out. He had huge levels of lead. And over the course of a year, we got them basically down to nothing to, to three, let's say. And he got off of all three of his meds. He never told his cardiologist what he was doing, but the cardiologist kept reducing his meds and was very proud that like the, they were getting off the meds, I think. And the patient believes that it probably was the chelation that got him off of the blood pressure meds. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. My experience with it, it's interesting because I know you're saying how a lot of patients don't want to go the pharmaceutical route, and I am 
usually not about the pharmaceuticals, but I was like, so, you know, in a dire mode, I was like, I'm just getting this out. I'm doing whatever I can do. And I was working with a doctor, but it was more of like a clinic type situation. Not the same as those hormone places that you were talking about, but kind of like I met with a doctor once and then it was kind of like, I could do whatever I wanted. So I just like kept doing it. Like I just like kept coming and getting IVs and getting pushes. And that's why I think I went a little bit too intense, but I did know, and I, I knew I would never get to zero. And interestingly, the more I did it, but especially after I started pulling out a lot of the, uh, the mercury burden, I started pulling out cause you, you list in your book, all these different heavy metals. I started pulling out, you know, like uranium and like these like other ones that are not as common. And I think it was just cause, cause I was diving, you know, deeper and deeper and pulling more and more out. But a, a huge question I have for you about the the challenge test and the, the urine test. And this is a similar question to the thing we're talking about with testing your thyroid and whether or not you're taking medication. So in the urine test, when you get your results in a post-challenge situation, the printout you get, assuming we're talk, using the same company, which I feel like there's like a main company that does this. It's compared to, I know you said like in theory, the pre and post should technically be the same, but like when they give you the printout of your post challenge results, they compare it to the population not challenged. Like it's compared to pre-challenge levels. Do you think that's like misleading at all? Or do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, I mean, I guess the argument there is that how could you compare a post test to somebody that didn't take anything to that would pull the metals out, right? Basically that you're comparing a test of, of giving someone a medication versus not, and that's not a fair comparison. The, my main argument is, is that our levels should be zero. They should be. They, like we weren't really designed to have a bunch of lead or mercury in our body or cesium or thallium or uranium or whatever. So to me, a baseline, I don't really need a comparative. Like that's, I guess, you know, if someone, you know, chooses to be like, well, my, my level of lead is 20 and I don't care. That's fine. That That's not people that are working with me. I mean, people care. And, and so to me, the only thing that matters is, is that the number is elevated and just using like lead. I mean, I basically use like a cutoff of 10. And if we're talking about the same lab, they kind of present your results as a bar and it could be in the green, yellow, or red and, and red, at least with lead is right around 10. And that's usually where I start like chelation therapy. But I don't even know if that's right. I mean, somebody, I mean, I'll offer somebody with a level of seven treatment because I don't think that stuff should be in our body. And and with the results that I've seen with people over the years and how much it can change things like blood pressure, autoimmune diseases, or fertility, I think it's worth a shot to get it out. There's definitely arguments from the traditional side of medicine against heavy metal testing or chelation. And that's one of them that you mentioned. But my counter to that is like, that's fine if you don't care if your level's 15, great. But most people would rather not. Like, why take the chance? Like, 
we weren't designed to have this stuff sitting in our, you know, reproductive glands or in our nervous system or in our immune cells. But it's not for everybody. So, you know, you can look at it how you want to. For me, I'm usually like a last resort for people that are just kind of desperate. You know, they're willing to try anything. And we're very lucky to have a lot of really amazing results. The funniest thing, I, I wrote it in the book, but in one of the main articles I found of like the argument from traditional doctors against heavy metal testing or chelation therapy is the cost. Usually, I mean, prices can vary a little, you know, they vary, but roughly, let's say a heavy metal test is about $140. And DMSA can be expensive. And and DMSA, the way it works when you're buying it or ordering it, the more of it you buy, the cheaper it is. So usually when somebody does needs DMSA for just the test, they might be paying like 50, 60 bucks, maybe a little more. When I'm actually putting somebody on chelation therapy, the price goes down dramatically because you're buying a lot more of it. But still, at the the high end of cost, you're looking at probably after everything like a thousand dollars, and so that's their argument that it's like don't ever do heavy metal testing or chelation because it's so expensive. How many things in medicine cost a thousand dollars? Like labs charge Medicare three hundred dollars for a vitamin D test. It, it's they, while I was writing this book, they approved this, this Alzheimer's drug, which most, I don't know, it was literally 50-50, but a lot of people didn't even think it should be approved, but it was. And this questionable drug that may or may not help people with dementia, the original price that they gave was $58,000 a year. And then due to backlash and saying people getting upset, they dropped the price to like 25000 a year, right? And that's, you know, people that develop dementia can live for a few years. So what, like that, that just like, you know, another thing that's like infuriating is like, you know, these arguments they make scaring people like, oh, it's going to be so expensive. What is more expensive? Like, chelating someone and decreasing their risk for developing dementia or not doing it and then them de- developing dementia and then spending 30,000 on this drug, 10,000 on this drug, etc. like it it's the argument of cost and I know for a lot of people I mean it's not cheap like it you know $1,000 for a treatment is not cheap but when you look at it relatively that it can literally help you prevent things like high blood pressure and dementia and, and all this other and hormone imbalances, et cetera. I don't get why insurance companies wouldn't want to get behind it and be like, hey, this is going to save us like countless, countless dollars. Yeah. No, it's such a valuable point. The whole system is just, uh, there's a lot that could be done with it. And I'll just do a little PSA for listeners because I really really went down the rabbit hole with the the mercury and the heavy metals. And mine actually was just from eating fish. Like I didn't have metal fillings. I didn't have acute exposure any other way. And one of the things I don't think people really realize, because you don't see mercury, <laughs> you know, like you don't see it in the fish. And I was always historically eating low mercury for that reason. 
And then I, I moved temporarily to California and I was like, oh, and I started exploring the world of different fish. And I was like, oh, it can't be that bad to like have a piece of swordfish or, and then when I actually went and looked at the data, like if you look at the charts of the mercury ranges, so if you take like a piece of swordfish that's on the higher side of mercury and compare it to like a piece of tilapia that's on the lower side, it can be as much as like 300 times the amount of mercury in one piece of swordfish. So like eating one piece of swordfish could be like 300 pieces of tilapia. So I I think people just might not realize it's a big deal. Like when I go to restaurants and I see these things on the menu, I'm like, don't order that fish because it can really have an effect. Quick question about citrus pectin because I was taking that then and I recently got inspired to start taking it again. Um, I'm going to interview Wendy Myers and she talks about it at length. Does it need to be taken on an empty stomach or do you take it with food at all? That's a, I would say on an empty stomach, but I would probably confer with, with someone that's using it more. I don't use it that often. I kind of mention it because some of my patients ask about it, but I have a lot more experience with actual chelation than citrus pectin powder is something I've just started using in like the last year. So I'm not the best resource for what exactly is the best way to take it, whether fasting or with food unfortunately. Okay. And then one other question, you pointed this out about an experience with your patients, which I've actually seen pop up in other people's books as well. And that's what levels do you see on people who are on like primarily vegetarian, for example, like eating lots of fruits and vegetables? How do you see that affect people's levels? So when you're talking about the different fish, I do have a chart in the book of what's the highest mercury, what's the lowest mercury fish. So people have that if they need it. But What I've seen in people that are more vegetarian diets or vegan diets. So the other other thing I would, sorry, before I go into that, challenge you on is is that it probably wasn't just the fish, right? Like you might have been born with a little bit of mercury because it crosses the placenta. They found it in organic Gerber baby food a couple, just like two, three years ago. And my mom had fillings historically. There you go. It's in the air from coal burning plants. So then that gets into the vegetarian vegan thing is that once it's in the air, it drops into the soil. Once it's in the soil, it can get in the crops. It can get in the animals eating crops that are growing out of the soil. So that's why I I would really like, there's literally nothing in your history. Like even if you had never eaten fish and you had never gotten mercury fillings, I still would test your mercury levels because It's literally everywhere. So it's like the only thing that heavy metals are probably the only thing that I would test besides maybe your gut health, your microbiome, that I wouldn't really need to hear anything in your history that would like sway me like, yes, this person needs to be tested or no, they don't. Like I would test anybody with the type of diet that somebody's followed. It in my experience, it doesn't make a huge difference. And another thing that people have heard of like mercury and mercury toxicity is the whole dental filling thing. I've also not really seen a consistency in testing people. I have people that'll come back through the roof with mercury levels and they've never had mercury fillings. I have people that have had seven, eight mercury fillings and they don't test positive. So it's really hard in my experience to really pinpoint like what was it in your lifestyle that that caused you to have an elevation. 
I, I really would just argue it doesn't matter what diet you're following, where you've lived, what you're drinking, not drinking, et cetera. Like I would just test anybody that that's basically like, to me, if you're alive in 2022, I would test you. I think that's great to point out. So awesome. Oh, so the vegetarians and the the fruits and veggies. So what I've found two toxins that I've found a lot of are cesium and thallium, specifically in people eating more vegetarian vegan diets. And I learned that from, I had a seven-year-old that uh, his parents brought him for OCD type behaviors. The child had been on the cleanest diet I'd ever heard of in my life. Like basically I'd been following like an AIP diet. And I mean, I was just blown away. I like even asked him, I was like, what, what if you went to like your friend's birthday and they wanted, they had cheeseburgers or something? He's like, no way I would ask for vegetables. So, but we tested him and he tested through the roof with cesium and thallium. I did some digging into it, talked to, to the lab, and where that's coming from is fruits and vegetables. Cesium and thallium are, are radioactive, basically toxic metals that are used in the oil industry. And when they're do a lot, what they're, they're doing with getting oil out of the ground, there's a lot of water left over. And that water is being purchased by farms that are going through droughts. So if you think about like California and the West Coast and all the droughts over the years, well, the way that they're able to grow their crops is, is they're buying water from that's left over from the oil industry that's full of like cesium and thallium. And probably the scariest part for, for a lot of your listeners and a lot of people would be that a farm could be called organic, even if it was watering their crops with those kind of, uh, with water left over from oil fracking or oil industry. So those are the metals that I see particularly elevated in people that are really high vegetable intake specifically. It speaks to your original point about how you would just test everybody because it's, you know, it can be a problem for, for anybody. You mentioned how you don't necessarily see a correlation between people's symptoms and the levels that they experience. Do you see a correlation within people? Like once people do get their levels down, does it tend to correlate to improvement in their health? Yeah. So it's just between between people. Yeah. And it depends on what kind of disease or symptoms we're going into and why we've started like detoxing. You know, in my first book, I, I wrote about a woman that came to me for infertility. She had huge levels of mold. We got them out three months after she tested. So mold is something that you can get totally down to zero. Three months after testing totally negative, she got pregnant for the first time and has a, a young, healthy baby boy now. The mold levels is something that we can get down to zero you know, what's interesting. I had mold toxicity for sure. When I moved out of my apartment in LA, I realized there was black mold everywhere, like behind my bed in the walls. And I just assumed it, I had it, but I never actually tested. I don't think I ever tested for, for mold pre and post. So we don't use pre and post. We use just straight up urine mycotoxin testing, which is just a first morning urine sample. And some practitioners are using like 
glutathione to like stimulate mycotoxin, like in a similar way that I use DMSA. For me, I've just used a regular, just a first morning urine collection that specifically measures mycotoxins and that that's what I use. So to me, I don't use like an, an agent that, that brings it out. Usually if somebody has pretty serious exposure, we catch it. Okay. Yeah. I was meaning like, I never tested like pre me realizing I had, and then like post, but that's very good to point out too, because people probably thought that's what I meant. Well, we have touched on a lot. So for listeners, you've just got to get this book. Cause like I said, this only barely scratches the surface of everything in it. And it is such a valuable resource. And especially I think what will be really valuable for people. Well, before that, are you still taking new patients? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, so you're an option obviously, but even if people don't work with you, it's a really great resource because you list, you know, the tests and basically what you need to be discussing with your doctor and what you need to be looking for in order to really, you know, take charge of your health. So what medications to use, what supplements to use, dosing of supplements, what foods to eat, how to clean up your home, how to test, you know, what you are using. So yeah, I'm really pumped for people to read it and be able to use it as something to kind of get the funk out, to get the hormones balanced and to to get the toxins out. Any other topics from the book that you wanted to touch on? No, I mean, I think we, we hit a lot. Well, this has been so, so amazing. So I don't know if you remember this from last time, but the last question that I always ask on the show, and it's really appropriate because we didn't even... We didn't go into this topic, but it is something that you touch on in this book and in your first book as well, and that's the overwhelming importance of mindset. So what is something that you're grateful for? I am grateful just for an opportunity to help people, for being introduced to functional medicine. I I would have never dreamed that this is what I would be doing, so I'm grateful that I randomly was introduced to this and that I followed it and I've been able to help people change their lives and to truly heal because going into medicine, I think that's kind of the point for, for most of us is that you want to help people heal. And then you go through the extensive brainwashing from the pharmaceutical industry. And that's not to say that, you know, just people are helped by pharmaceuticals, but there's also the joy of seeing people heal without them and to figure out why they're sick and and letting them heal. So I would say I'm grateful for just finding functional medicine and helping people have a different way to look at their health. Well, thank you so much for doing that because you're really doing amazing, incredible things. And like I said, we aired the first episode and I think it helped so many people. I got so much amazing feedback and I'm really, really excited for people to get their hands on this book because it's just going to further all of that. So thank you. Thank you. How can people best get the book, follow your work, work with you if they want to? What's the links for all of that? I'd say my website is the best spot, doc-cause.com, D-O-C-K-O-Z.com. The books are available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, your local small bookstore can order it. They're not going to have it in stock probably, but they can get it pretty quickly. So I would say my website for sure is, is going to have links to the books and to, to scheduling an appointment or to, to getting a hold of us. That's definitely the best way. And when it comes to finding the book, Get the Funk Out, it's funk with a C, and that's for functional medicine. Oh, 
<laughs> that just occurred to me. Okay. That's great. We used to have t-shirts at my practice that said, we put the funk in functional medicine. Oh, I love that. So that's where funk came from. So it's F-U-N-C. Yeah, I'm just really excited to get this out there. Like I said, I, I we got a lot of awesome feedback from the first book, and I, I think that this one's better. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Doc Cause. This has been so amazing. I will look forward to your future work. Do you think you'll be writing a book three in the future? I said, I don't know. Right now I would say no, but I also said no after the first one. And then next thing you know, I had written a second one. So for now, no, but you never know. Exactly. That's how it goes. Well, thank you so much. This has been a true pleasure and hopefully we can connect again in the future. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.